welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pink Smoke Podcast, which is a subscribers-only benefit for our Patreon subscribers. So the first thing is we want to thank all of you for subscribing to our Patreon and helping ensuring that we can pay the writers who write for the site. The Pink Smoke Podcast will be a monthly show released towards the beginning of each month that focuses on new film, on new cinema, which is a bit of a rarity for the site. We have a tendency to write about older films more than new releases. I am your host, Christopher Funderburg, and I am joined by uh, John Cribbs. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for subscribing. Um, John and I uh, have had a few discussions about how we're going to run the show and what the format is going to be, but it's still... uh, I think it just boils down to it'll be John and I and a guest frequently discussing a new movie. That's it. Nothing more complicated than that. You know, in the back of my head, uh, I had a little bit of the idea that, you know, we have an unofficial policy on the site. We don't really talk about movies we don't like, uh, that we'd rather sort of dig into things we're interested in and try and get people interested in the stuff we're interested in, then, you know, try and tear down movies we dislike or convince people not to like stuff. And if anything, we try and come around on movies that we haven't liked before. We have a few series that are explicitly about changing our opinions. So with this series, we wanted to try and pick movies that we thought there was a good chance of us liking. So for the first episode here, we're going to talk about Michael Hanukkah's Happy End, uh, which we had gone and sort of selected on this idea. Um, For me personally, that it would probably be a movie I'd like. It's a filmmaker that I'm a huge fan of and that I know John is a fan of as well. So that was our jumping off point for it. But... You know, I think there's there's two things I got to say. One, I didn't like Happy End that much. And two, I had disliked his previous film, Amour, so much that it made me call into question his entire filmography. That the cliches of Amour and sort of the the badness of it, the, the sort of, it hits all of the notes of like a... a dying young sweet november you know couple who's in love and one dies like down to the suffocation with the pillow at the end it just made me if you can make that movie do you believe in the other things you've been saying if you can be that sort of cloyingly romantic and sort of boneheadedly uh emptily romantic uh romanticized not romantic, but romanticized as a more, what does that say about the rest of your work? So those are sort of the two jumping off points I had here. Because Happy End is a sort of pseudo-semi-sequel to a more, that uh, that is going to be all tied up in this discussion. But John, I want to hear some of your thoughts on this. Well, I think it's important uh, to make sure that that's explicit, what we're talking about here in terms of the problems that we have with Hanukkah and his, and his films. Um, I'd like to just kind of go back for a minute and talk about our relationship uh, with those films, because Absolutely. I think, I think we saw funny games together for the first time at uh, the late lamented uh, Rick's Pyramont video. We uh, picked it up there because you had read a film comment article about it and heard good things about it. And we were blown away, right? I mean, that movie, when you go in not familiar with the director 
uh, when you haven't seen, you know, Seventh Continent or Betty's video, it's a movie that will knock your socks off with its just its the, just its power. You know, whether or not the argument is that you know it's trying to get a rise out of its audience or it's implicating its audience in the violence that you see. What don't you think? And especially in the context of funny games, no filmmaker. Every criticism before a more, I loved all of his movies. I think that they were Absolutely. all rated somewhere from good to masterpiece. I th- I always felt like with Hanukkah that no good filmmaker, like the criticisms leveled against him are always idiotic. Like there's plenty of filmmakers I like that are good criticisms of that I respect, but he's somebody that just like the criticisms of like funny game are like, he's trying to punish the audience and rub their nose in it. And it's just a cheap trick, which is like, just, it just seems like the dumbest possible thing you could say about that movie. Right. That's that's the basic criticism that gets launched at him all the time is that he has a detached clinical uh, kind of you know scientist in a lab sort of approach to his his films that he doesn't actually care about his characters. Well, just that also like a guy who's exclusively made scary horror thrillers, horror tinge thrillers, thinks audiences are dumb for wanting to see scary horror thringe tinge thrillers. You know, just mm-hmm. that like th- nobody should make the kind of movies I've almost exclusively made in his career. It's just like on its surface that's a ludicrous criticism you know back at funny games i think that's a little less clear that he's going to make films like time of the wolf and cachet and even white ribbon that have uh sort of traditional thriller um or certainly thrillerish elements to them there's nothing traditional about what he does you know he's a filmmaker who is smart enough to understand how to make these elements in these films thrilling and and disturbing but he's not so detached i think that he is trying to make a statement about them he's not you know taking one side or 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 taking a moral position on any of these things he's just interested yeah but he says in the um the director's notes on code unknown i am not a forger of opinions which i think is really important to him sorry go on no i just say that's i think we're in agreement that that is not that has never been an issue for us with Hanukkah and his films we've never you know thought that these were problems or that these were honestly uh criticisms these were honest criticisms or correct criticisms against him and it wasn't until more that we both thought oh this is uh this is a kind of off <laughs> yeah <laughs> like is, what does this mean about him this movie and i think obviously we're coming from a position if my if i start at the beginning like oh, i hate a, a movie called love it's too romantic you know mm-hmm. what i mean that uh, yeah but i i want to just make a distinction i meant romanticized that i think it has i think Amor has a very phony-ish view of what end of life depression and despair is about whereas i feel like the the despair in his other movies um emotions he does mute emotions in a lot of his films that they Mm -hmm. have a sort of uh implicit stirring underneath things emotionality and sort of when amor shines the light on what he thinks about emotions and it's all cliches it's like well is that what he actually feels? And he is playing a trick with the other movies by hiding his answers and hiding what people are thinking and feeling. Is that just a trick? And if 
you know, you asked him what's inside Isabelle Huppert's character in The Piano Teacher, would his answer be as idiotic as the characters that he's written in Amour, you know? Mm-hmm. Or does well, that not matter? I think I think it's important to clarify that the that saying Amour is him softening up or that, you know, it, it doesn't have the kind of uh, power or the force that his earlier films do, like we were expecting something really fucked up or something, uh, is not at all the problems that we have with that movie, that it's his films more than anything are about very fragile surfaces that are shattered, that there's like one element that's taken out of something out of a structure and then it all collapses, that there's this facade going on that his characters are involved in and that some intrusion, some outside force comes into it and those surfaces fall apart or, the society that they are all society, the society that everyone kind of needs to stabilize uh, their, their life is taken away from them. So let me let me let me throw you at this. Wouldn't have the more Hanukkah Hanukkah version of a more been? He realizes once she gets her diagnosis that he doesn't actually love her and doesn't care that she dies. That sort of their storybook romance has been an illusion in some way. That's what I expect it from Hanukkah. like that. You know it has, what I mean? It has the right formula where it sets up that these two only have each other. So yeah. that her being taken away is the one thing that's going to shatter their, their, their life. But I would actually put the criticisms of his other films, I would target that more and more than any of his other films. I think it feels very cold. It feels isolated. It set feels in that manipulative really in an empty dark, way. Yeah, that that really dark and, and unfriendly environment of their apartment, almost exclusively set in that 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 setting. Um, I felt that film was very cold, and I didn't feel the emotions that I think Henneke was w- wanting me to feel. It felt manipulative in a way that his other movies don't. Let me exactly. Let me ask you this: Do you feel like I feel like with Happy End? Because it's a semi-sequel and a pseudo-sequel, do you think Hanukkah was dissatisfied with Amor in some way? I definitely got the feeling watching this film that maybe he was taking a few shots at Amor. I definitely got that feeling. I, um, you know, I think it's as much a because just to give a little a little bit of the context, how it's a semi-sequel. Jean-Louis Trintignant plays a guy who seems like the same character, sort of from Amor, and Isabelle Huppert plays his like ice-cold daughter, which is the same relationship they had. He's named George Laurent, but all of Hanukkah's heroes are named George Laurent. It's George and Anna Laurent in all these right. movies. And, 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 even, and even Isabelle Huppert plays Eva in this, uh, um, played Eva in Amour, and in this one she's Anne, so clearly yeah. it's not the same character name. You're not supposed to definitely think there's the same characters. They're a rich family that run a construction company. They're not musicians. I mean, I think... It's as spiritually close to a more story-wise, and there are as many superficial similarities as any of his films that you could connect to one another. Uh, even the re- the U.S. remake of Funny Games and its relation to the original film, um, I, and, and I think that we're only supposed to think of it as any having any kind of relation to that original film to to a more. As uh, as we are as we are, he's trying to make some sort of a comment about that film. Well, it feels like a do-over. It feels a little like, if not a do-over, like maybe I didn't express myself clearly. I'm Michael Hanukkah. Let me let me articulate what I meant because this last film, as popular and beloved as it was, seems to have been misunderstood. I get a little bit of the feeling 
from it. With that, with that in mind, it's interesting because uh, of your feelings about it more. What about Happy End didn't work for you? You know, the, you know, one of the other criticisms of Hanukkah is that he has these sort of um, killer kids that are almost like creatures out of a horror film that he does uh, youth villainy in a way that's almost like a horror movie. And I, that's obviously untrue. When people call White Ribbon Village of the Damned, you know, you obviously have a very complex kid, the one who's like, I gave God the chance to kill me, but he didn't do it, so that means he approves of what he's doing. And then you have the sweet kid who, after his father's bird has been murdered, has been uh, eviscerated, he gives his own bird to the father, and there's a super sweet kid, and there's a variety of children in that film, which is part of the point. And I think even characters like uh you know benny from benny's video and the jerk ass kid in code unknown they're interesting characters they're well-written characters i find the daughter uh the main who's as much as this film has a main character in happy end i find her to be actually guilty of more of the criticisms that his other family uh children are given in his movies that she's there's sort of an empty to her awfulness and it does play a little bit it it plays the note of like these kids they got the internet today and they're up to no good on it but <laughs> so are their parents you know <laughs> that it doesn't i disliked happy end much more as soon as i was done watching it than i do now with a couple days to have had it settled in my mind um that i just wanted it to be as good as his other movies so I could be reassured that Hanukkah's as much that I should still continue to love him. White Ribbon, uh, Piano Teacher, and Time of the Wolf are three of my not just favorite movies but movies that have immense personal meaning to me that I sort of configure the way I understand the world and interpret reality through the prism of those movies helps me to understand the world. Had they helped me to exist? And I wanted reassurances that he's back. And I think of all the movies to compare Happy into, it's probably most like Code Unknown. It has the same sort of totally diffuse narrative where you're sort of like, what is even the story idea here? It feels it more like a collection of scenes. Yeah, yeah. It like plays out of vignettes the same way that Code Unknown does. And I think also it's interesting to kind of think of it as uh, redoing cachet only showing it through the kid's point of view. There's a shot at the end of Caché where uh, what we're supposed to think about the sun is completely shat- is completely changed. We don't. There's an ambiguity that's yeah. introduced that completely changes that character who's just been a, pretty much in the background throughout the whole film. Or opens questions about what they are. Oh, exactly right. We there's no, there's definitely no. Um, there's there's nothing nothing explicit said about that character that we're now supposed to be creeped out by him or consider yeah. him one of the bad guys, but it's it's definitely put out there that we haven't been paying attention to this character and maybe we should have been. Uh, it's just one of the most amazing final shots in uh, uh, in recent film, and I think that this this time by bringing uh, Eve to the to the foreground and definitely making her. You know, for for lack of a better word, the main character of the movie or the the center of the film, it's returning to Benny's video where he's you know interested 
in uh, this kind of voyeuristic tendency that, that children has that he's obviously a little creeped out by. Yeah, and youths using modern socio-media devices as a distancing device is something he's obviously concerned in, is how young people, because they have so much to process about the world in their change in emotional states that they put screens between themselves in the world. And those screens, is that a good thing? I think is a question to him is what do all these screens mean for children in an emotional context, which is, you know, sort of afraid dad stuff, which I think you can accuse Benny's video of being a little bit. And definitely as a parent, when I watch Happy End and there's that scene where she's watching one of those like hyperverbal cute YouTuber guys, you know, mm-hmm. I have a like, oh, my son loves shit like that. Like, ugh, I hope he doesn't kill, you know, anybody. <laughs> hope he does because he seems like pretty, pretty happy go lucky. But so does she. And I think that she's sort of I think that the actress, the performer, the child actress is not up. Yeah, to Fontaine it. Herden. Yeah, I, well, think, I think that that's very good in the movie. You what? I think she's very good in the movie. Oh, do you? I think the opposite. I think she's not up to the task. Mm. I think that that's the difference between her and other youth actors he's worked with and sort of discovered, like Arno Frisch, that he she's just not up to it. Or all of the child actors in White Ribbon, uh, or The Sun in Time of the Wolf. She feels like a much thinner performance. She feels like she's playing uh, placid when he wants her to disguise her emotional state. And then she plays it angry when it's a moment of anger. It just feels very straightforward in a way that I don't think helps that character. It's interesting. I should, I should say that I like the movie better than you did. I don't consider it anywhere near, you know, the accomplishment of time of the wolf, seventh continent piano teacher, nowhere near. It's definitely, you know, uh, second tier. It's a weird shadow of Seventh Continent. Seventh Continent hangs over it in a weird way. Yeah, all, I think all of his films hang over it in a weird way, in that not only is he kind of you know parodying a more or commenting on a more, but bringing you know back ideas and themes from his previous films, not even as a way of reexamining them, but almost to kind <laughs> to kind of make a comedy out of them. Yeah, kind of, you know, the, the, it's definitely got a broad comedy sense about it. And more than any of his other films, I'd say this is like late period Alan Renee. You know? Oh my God. Yeah. That's a great comparison. Yeah. So like as much as I wanted to like appreciate this more as like, uh, because there were things about it too, that reminded me a little bit of, I don't know, a Mike Lee film or a Chabrol film where it's about a family structure and taking time to examine each family member and their kind of emotions of where they're at. Um, but he kind of, you know, isn't interested in making that kind of a movie and he backtracks and makes it farcical. And I think it's a real difficult balancing act yeah. with Eve because at the same time, she's supposed to be the most sympathetic character. She's the one character who isn't, you know, being hypocritical or uh, backstabbing other characters. What? Um, what? But, at, but at the same time, <laughs> at the same time, yeah. she's the most horrible person in the movie. Yeah. And it's strongly implied that she is actually the one who is, murdering people and uh you know uh completely detached from society and a complete sociopath 
uh, so that she's, you know, willing to do what she does at the end of the movie. Sociopaths can be useful, seems to be one of the weird Because themes. when you see the Haneke characters in this film, um, Isabel Huppert's character and uh, everyone else, the, the, the son, just kind of breaking down and trying desperately to hold on to their very fragile, you know, life, she's the one who can kind of take a back seat and sort of watch it all collapse and not be morally implicit in the stuff that's going on while at the same time she is clearly the 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 spawn of this horribleness that these characters and their uh the duplicity and their uh lack of love or care for each other uh even though they, they you know they, they 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 claim to have you know a forward thinking uh uh, life and, and 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 take care of each other they are the, she is the result of all of yeah. these lies and all of these you know all this horribleness that's going on i should say also the um the son character isabel Huppert's son and her relationship with him as he's breaking down and um and and kind of bringing all these hypocrisies to light really reminded me of white material and her Huppert's relationship oh, with yeah. her son in that movie. That's so a good comparison. I, and I've always said that Huppert, you know, being, I think we agree, the greatest actor in the world, the greatest film actor in the world, is an auteur in her in her own in her own right that she yes. brings her own that her own films. You would never see a movie with Huppert and not think that's a Huppert movie. And so that's kind of an interesting thing that happens in this film, where her character is not only a reflection of the other characters she's played for Hanukkah in the past. But it's a Huppert character who has relationships with uh, other family members the way Huppert has in other movies. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned The Sun, and you had also mentioned it being like a Chabrol film either. At the end, when he sort of crashes the dinner party, that really reminded me of Benoit Magamel and A Girl Cut In 2, when he saunters up to the the stage. Although that's a comparison that hurts, because Benoit Magamel's so much better in A Girl Cut In 2 than that guy is, who sort of... A bit of a stock, unhappy, rich kid. You know what I mean? He reminds Mm. me of, like, bad Ozon, too. You know what I mean? Like, when Mm. Ozon isn't firing on cylinders and he just has these, like, uh, you know, something-something rich kid who does too much drugs. You know what I mean? And I think that ultimately when I watch Happy End, you mentioned a comedy, you mentioned Mike Lee, you mentioned Claude Chabrol, that I don't have a sense of what this movie is trying to be i think is ultimately its biggest flaw is that i checked my watch uh at like watching this film and i was like wow i'm an hour and 15 minutes into this movie i don't have the faintest sense where it's going or what it's about like if you're to describe this movie to someone and we've avoided doing it what's it about it's about a rich family and the old guy, who's like the old guy from Amor, uh, is getting old and is unhappy about being old. And the teenage daughter is unhappy about being a teenager. And the mom is unhappy about being a mom. And the son is unhappy about being a son. And what? That none of them are headed for a happy end. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, but but what's the story? And I think that's a comparison to Chabrol is interesting for the idea of Chabrol frequently sets up mysteries and narrative structures, thriller structures, to discard them for his own interests. 
this movie doesn't set up a thriller structure to discard. So I, I'm not sure what you can hang your hat on in this movie. And there's stuff that feels more on the nose than I'm used to with, with Hanukkah. Um, I think, uh, it's a movie about suicide and suicidal ideation and uh, depression and misery and how class affords you no comforts, even in the face of your depression. If anything, it exacerbates them in a weird way. Uh, and so to compare it to Seventh Continent, Seventh Continent, from the opening sequence at the car wash, I am upset. I am mm-hmm. upset by Seventh Continent the whole way through as someone who's dealt with, with suicidal ideation and depression. It's a movie that hits that frequency so perfectly that nothing needs to happen in Seventh Continent. And it's a very minimalist movie because it's hit the vibration of mental illness and depression and human misery so perfectly that it needs no explanation. Happy End hits no note perfectly enough that you can go with it and again i think it's a little like code unknown in that regard which i regard as one of his lesser movies uh still very very good but one of his lesser movies yeah i would say that i liked happy end about the same as i liked code unknown i think code unknown has more sort of traditionally bravura filmmaking moments in it that it has one or two sequences that are like heart stopping like the scene on the bus where she Julia Pinochet and the old man are getting harassed mm-hmm. or like the tricks it plays with the the swimming pool scene mm-hmm. or just even like the opening uh the opening scene where the trash gets thrown in the guy's face those are sort of heart stopping filmmaking moments that happy end I don't think has any of them even a more has the pigeon sequence where he's wrangling the bird in the apartment that's just like filmmaking magic that just only a truly talented director can do and happy end reminds me a little of when we go to the toronto film festival and you see like 20 films from europe 18 of them are like happy end you know what i mean <laughs> yeah I, I agree that it has code unknown's problems where it kind of, kind of services individual moments rather than one big narrative or one big you know one thing that he's that he's going to where that the characters are or where the character's going to end up uh i think that there are some very powerful sequences in, in happy end though more subtle maybe i think you know the collapse of the construction site oh, and yeah. the, uh, the son being uh assault, assaulted when he goes to ap- uh, apologize or whatever he's doing with the, the guy who was involved in the accident um and then the Again, using Eve as this kind of how are we supposed to feel about this character kind of character uh, when she her relationship with the baby, her little um, brother, uh, uh, yeah. brother, you know, it's like the implication is that she may have poisoned her own mother, killed her own mother. And we don't want her around that baby at all. Yeah, we don't want her thinking some psychologically weird thing like maybe he'll be a replacement for my dead brother. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, your brother died? Did you, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So all those moments, I think maybe they're not, you know, quite as, wow, I just got knocked, you know, out yeah, of my seat impact. sort of moments. Yeah, they're not high impact moments, but they they resonate. You know, those are moments that I think really worked worked for me. But I don't know. Is she going to kill her baby brother? Feels like a cheaper trick than he normally pulls. Does it feel, it, to me, it feels so Hanukkah. God, I don't know. I don't even know anymore. 
I, I sort of I look at what is what is his best work, and his best work is built around ambiguities. All of his films end with unanswered questions. In some ways, that's why The Castle was the perfect Hanukkah ending in some way. He's adapting a book fairly closely, and the ending of the book was never written. He can just end his film mid-sentence, you right. know? That, that that's well, perfect playing, in some ways. He's, he's playing with ambiguities in this movie, though, that are in ways that are interesting. I think he, even more so than Coda Known, he took this movie and probably structured it all out, laid it all out, and then start taking pieces away from it. And, you know, I mean, besides the usual stuff, like we don't initially know who's taking the, the, the phone videos. We don't know who's on the computer having the sex talk at first. Yeah, um, but that's a, but that stuff feels emptier that to withhold clear explanations of character relationships to sort of have the Toby Jones, like, who is this fucking guy? Like, that's not a real question. You know what I mean? Like, did this daughter do it or not? Doesn't feel like a real question in the way that the question of cachet starts as who sent the tape and the much harder to pin down question of why did they send the tape? You know, he doesn't satisfy He doesn't uh, unambiguously resolve who sent the tape. And he digs much deeper into the why a tape might be sent I don't feel the whys as deeply in Happy End. Do you? I, no, I, I agree with you. I think that he's he's not exploring the whys so much in this movie. I think he's more interested in the how, which is, you know, sort of counter, you know, intuitive to what he usually does. But it's it, I think that it's kind of interesting. I think, again, kind of relating to a more where, you know, he minimalizes the the film as much as it can be, this one he's making more expansive and introducing things left and right that aren't going to kind of coalesce or come into one steady flow. But I think that's what makes the movie interesting. I don't know. I think... Am I just being Eva and saying to Michael Hanukkah, Daddy, you're not going to leave me and make me stay in a foster home, are you? <laughs> Is that just what I'm doing here? Saying, don't leave, Hanukkah. I need you. You didn't love him more, and you don't love Happy End either. <laughs> well, that's the thing. I think that, you know, the question of how we're supposed to feel about Eve is the mystery of this movie. You know, the fact that she is, you know, the uh, is the result of, of, the, of these people's lives and the way they've been living it, that they've kind of created this poison amongst them, who at the same time is so completely detached. I mean, it's the most, I think in some ways, it's the most Hanukkah character ever. Yeah, because, And not only that, she's, you know, put into the foreground in the way that usually he doesn't explore. And I guess, you know, it, you could say, well, he's looking for answers in this movie more than he usually is. But I find that interesting. I think I was captivated by how Eva was supposed to, you know, kind of resonate in our minds and how we were supposed to kind of feel sympathy for her. And, and, and that exact same feeling of like her, like saying... You know, are you going to, you know, just take just take me with you if you decide to do something horrible and desert your family again? Isn't a lot of I think a lot of my problem with the film though too is the last fifteen minutes is so silly, where the sun shows up with like these are the black people you don't care about, and Jean Louis Trintignant gets his death wish engaged in some way. I think all of that is is like more obvious and sillier. Than he normally does. I think, I think silly the for its definitely obvious. Definitely sillier from beginning to end. I think it's sillier 
than his other movies are. I think that he's, I think he wanted it to be like a, a, a light of a lighter, again, a, like an Alan Rene kind of quality where, or even Paul, Paul Bartel, I would say, throw oh. it out there, you know, where it's a lot broader. It's a lot more satirical. And he, if, if there aren't like, if there aren't answers or there isn't like a real inquiry into the why it's that he wasn't interested in doing that this time. He was interested in like broader characterizations and making the vignettes play as this kind of half terrifying, half humorous sort of things and throwing stuff in like the son's karaoke performance yeah. as, as ways to like, but that's a very like normal art house cinema scene. As much as mm-hmm. I enjoy the karaoke performance, like somebody doing a goofy, desperate dance to a pop song I mean, how many hundreds of, of art house movies is that in? Now? And I think maybe he's, I think maybe he knows that. You know, we, yeah. we, we one of the re- reactions that you had to L, the Paul Verhoeven movie with uh, Isabel Huppert that I always thought was interesting was that he might be making fun of Haneke or Haneke style cold European films about, uh, you know, upper class uh, Europeans. Yeah, I definitely felt like, God, if Hanukkah sees this, how can he ever make a movie ever again? Right. I feel like he, you know, he very well, very well may have seen that and thought that he was kind of, you know, had, had, a, had a trigger reaction of, well, I can, you know, make fun of myself too. Or yeah, again, looking I at it more and saying, yeah, having that kind of thought too, because Hanukkah, who's in his, Hanukkah's in his mid seventies now. And it was in the conversation for so long as being one of the most important filmmakers on the planet and doing a more and having his huge success and winning his Oscar. Where does he go from there? It's taken him five years to come to this film. Yeah. And I don't know. It, it almost seems like a Coen Brothers type reaction to success where the, the worst Coen Brothers films and definitely the broadest ones have come right after their biggest successes, you know, like big Lebowski following Fargo and, uh, Burn After Reading, following um, No Country for Old Men. You know, it's, it's it doesn't mean that they aren't, like, interested in doing this a certain way, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like high-quality, high-end output from this particular artist. Yeah, and I guess to wrap it back to the beginning, I, I think my main reaction to this movie and Happy End is, huh, he's been very consistent over the course of a long career, and he's finally entering a new phase. And I, I always get worried of, gosh, you know, is he entering, is he, you know, about to become early 80s Altman? You know what I mean? Like, huh. there's things to like in A Wedding or Brewster McCloud, but most of it is going to be beyond therapy. You know what I mean? <laughs> that That even if you're in a forgiving mood for some of them, filmmakers go off the rails all the time after being phenomenal for prolonged stretches and i sort of because there is a change in his work i'm reading the tea leaves in a way that maybe five years from now when i come back to happy end i'll have an entirely different relationship to it you know that it, you're, it definitely... you're definitely eve you're definitely eve in this situation <laughs> no i i give haneke enough credit though to say that like this is a ref, a self-reflective film and works because he's taken a different approach one that he hasn't taken before uh isn't that always the danger when filmmakers start getting self-reflective isn't that what leads to caricature and lack of seriousness i don't know give me an example 
the Coen brothers, exactly mm. what you're talking about, that you make No Country for Old Men and then you do the plot of the the completely hopelessly convoluted, I forget what their quote, the quote is, hopelessly convoluted story that ultimate resolution doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. You know, that they see all of their work that way as putting in motion a bunch of idiots working towards a resolution that's ultimately unimportant. And that's philosophically their view of the world in some way. That's that they take that from No Country for Old Men uh, from the book, I think says a lot about them and says almost nothing about the book. And so then you get them unadulterated burn after reading, which is itself parody. You know, that like, I think that when filmmakers start looking at themselves and hearing those sort of footsteps behind themselves about what they're doing that that frequent that rarely leads to they made their best artwork you know when they got sort of caught up in exploring the notion of what is a robert altman you know (laughs) um and so i i think that there's there's few examples of filmmakers getting really self-reflexive that you're like that's their best work i mean look at you know like fassbender beware of a holy whore that's the classic example of a filmmaker stopping at an earlyish point in his career and saying, what am I? And making a terrible movie. That's all legit. I think maybe I'm thinking of more in terms of like music and like, I don't know, Ghostface Killer and fish scale, you know? yeah. <laughs> like that kind of self-reflection. Um, but I think, no, I think you're right. I think that anything wrong with happy end is definitely going to be that sort of, that sort of problem, that Coen brothers problem. Um, I think it's just that I hold Hanukkah in such high regard and not that I'm giving him a pass or anything, but I, I think, I think what he's giving us with happy end is a film where he's stepping back from being Hanukkah for a moment and almost kind of coming into this film in a way where he's exploring for the first time in several years by not being entirely inquisitive by not wanting to explore, um, taking a back seat. You know, everything I'm saying now is making it sound like, oh, well, but well, that's, but like that's the, the movie's movie problem is it's not the work of a young, hungry fighter out on the title chase. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That that's really, it's not. When you have something like Time of the Wolf or Piano Teacher, those are the work of a very hungry artist. You know what I mean? A very hungry artist who realizes they're hitting their prime and can play every note exactly how they want to play it. So they're going to play their fucking brains out, you know, and ha- yeah. and happy and doesn't have that feel. Well, I guess the question is, then, do do filmographies by great filmmakers have have a place for movies like Happy End? You know, is there a way to say to contextualize in a way to say this is what this is why when this movie's coming out and this is what he's interested in at this point in time where it doesn't matter that he's not hungry and that he's not make he's not setting out to make a masterpiece if Hanukkah told me he set out to make a masterpiece with happy end I'd probably laugh in his face yeah you definitely want to fight that dude every time I've seen you guys interact (laughs) there's so much tension I know he's just constantly laughing in his face such a fucking snob uh Um, he has a guy that definitely every time I see a photo of him, I'm like, don't show me. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. it's harder for me to take your film seriously when I know what you look like and how like your mannerisms. Don't make me judge your books by your cover, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, something he said about this film, too, is that um, uh, 
you know, his philosophy of that explanations are boring. Things in daily life are that we only catch fragments of places and people. Uh, I think that that, you know, kind of explains why he decided to do this fractured narrative the way he did. And, and that he, he was very purposely going for vignettes and not leading everything from one end to another or following like a, one of his traditional storylines. It's interesting. I think, you know, we, we wanted this show to be like 25 minutes to a half an hour long. I think it's going to go right about 45 for the first episode, uh, which is fine. I did want to say just leading up, building sort of towards an end, I think one of the things I compare this to is Wormwood, Errol Morris's new docu-esque series, where Wormwood feels like Errol Morris entering a new phase of his career. He's not using the Interatron. He's expanded the uh, reenactment sections. He's made, uh, you know, an almost five hour long artwork. He's expanding what he's doing. And it's super exciting. It feels like the most exciting thing He's he's. (laughs) Errol Morris was my favorite filmmaker in the world, probably living filmmaker, and he found another gear and another level, and he's clearly entering into something new, you know, and that's super exciting. With Haneke, you know, and he had the lead-up of Elsa Dorfman, uh, the B-side, a movie that I did not particularly like, that felt like a step back or a step out of himself in some mm-hmm, way. Mm-hmm. And Hanukkah has the same thing where Amor feels like a step back or a step out of himself in some way as a prelude to a new phase. And I'm much less, uh, uh, I, I have my doubts about the new phase he seems to be entering into if it in fact ends up being a new phase. Now there's a chance, like you're saying, 10 years from now when the dust settles, I have an entirely different relationship to all this. And there is obviously in filmmakers a space in their film filmography for work that's not their best work. But sort of in the moment, you know, I think it's harder to step back and say, I'm happy with, you know, there's certainly plenty of Chabrol films that I'm like, that's a B-plus film that I'm glad exists, you know, like... It, oh, he's got B-minus films too, sure. Yeah, and that, that, I'm, that I like a bit, that yeah. I like quite a bit you know and yeah. so maybe when dust settles that's how it'll be for me it might have been just that he blew up the dam with the more in my my opinion and like you you know i really thought back to his filmography and it you know they came like do i like hanukkah anymore after this movie it just took that one film to you know break that thread for me when he was doing nothing but making masterpiece after masterpiece for several years um maybe i just wanted something that was going to remind me of hanukkah more than than a more did and yeah. I might be cutting it slack for that reason. Um, so I might, you know, be going back and like thinking about Happy End again. Who knows if I am eager to see it again anytime soon. I do have positive thoughts of it, though, for now. Yeah. Well, I think that brings us to the end of our first episode. You know, obviously, I love talking about movies with you, John. Um, and so I'm happy to be doing this just for that reason. Just Likewise, to... and I just want to apologize to everyone that we went back and forth between pronouncing his name Hanukkah and Haneke for years. We've been calling him Haneke. And uh, just recently uh, we discovered that Hanukkah might be the correct pronunciation. Well, I mean, he's one of those filmmakers that I show my immense respect to by refusing how to learn how to pronounce his name. (laughs) One of my many favorite filmmakers that I just refuse to, to say Hanukkah correctly on. It also sounds like Hanukkah. Like the, uh, the, you know, happy end, happy Hanukkah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That it's, it's hard for me to get around. It's like John F. Kennedy refusing to call Laos, Laos 
because he didn't think people would get behind uh, supporting protecting the people of Laos. <laughs> so he called it Laos incorrectly. That's, that's so I'm like Kennedy. Um, because you hate Hanukkah. <laughs> John, let's do this again in a month. Next month, our guest will be Pink Smoke Third Mike, Marcus Penn of Penland Empire, and the film will be a surprise. I think we're, that we're just going to surprise people with what film we're talking about when the episode is dropped. This was so much fun. Thank you so much again, everyone who subscribed. Thank you so much for the support. We're really excited. 2018 is going to be a great year for the website. And uh, I'm very excited to do this again. Thank you, Chris. Awesome. This is outro music we'll play right now. That uh, that beatbox of a no-means-knows acapella version of Looking Forward to Death. Okay. <laughs> Bye.